John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 091.EZ2220, certificate number 30148, Backyard Blast Furnaces. So we live in an era, Futurelings, you should know that we live in an era that we think of as the ascendancy of China. China now is a major economic force, a global social force. They have sort of revolutionized manufacturing, and they've also become, a, well, uh, I guess, newly half-liberated society. But this stands in bold contrast to the China that uh, we knew growing up. I guess the Americocentric take on that is that... Uh you know, our growing realization for the, maybe the first time in our history that we are an empire in decline, that we, instead of being a one-of-a-kind experiment, can now compare ourselves to, you know, to Rome or the Ottomans or any number of empires that did <laughs> just great for a few centuries. Well, and, and that, uh, because that's still happening, it's still open to debate, right? The American experiment is ongoing, but it does have competition from competitive experiments. And it has, it has throughout the 20th century, like the, the USSR, the Soviet experience or experiment, I guess, lasted uh, 80 years. And throughout the, the USSR, it was seen as a direct competitor with the American idea. I was just reading a thing about the Bible they wrote when they were putting the first Star Trek on the air. I know you love to talk about Star Trek I on the do, show. I do. You're always like, Ken, why don't we talk more about Star Trek? I'm amazed that you can make Star Trek connections to almost anything. Well, the thing, the thing that the network, the network note on the show is like, well, if we're going to do a space show set in the future, we cannot say which socioeconomic system won out. That's oh. got to be absolutely verboten just because it was such a source of nervousness for people, I guess, the idea that well, what if we were wrong and, you know, the Soviets really are better at all these, you know, what, what if this is the end of our economic hegemony? How, right. are, we, how are we saying that word? Hegemony? How did we decide hegemony? we were going to say it? <laughs> <laughs> Hege hegemony is how I'm going to say it. You say hegemony. Hemogenomy. Hegemony, like, uh, hegemony. Like, like the girl from Harry Potter. Well, uh, and when you think about the Star Trek universe in Next Generation, they're very proud about not having money. So clearly capitalism wasn't the thing that put 
all of those spaceships in the space. Next Generation comes out in like 89. It's the same year that uh, the wall comes down, That's right? right? There like, you go. It's, it's now safe to say that some kind of controlled economy might be working. But one of the ways that we think about the story of the 20th century is, and particularly like America's sort of bumpy road was we, we had tremendous manufacturing capacity throughout the first part of the 20th century. And then that that manufacturing started to decline because it started to be more efficient to have things manufactured in other countries where labor costs were lower. And initially it was, uh, Japan was the big threat to American manufacturing. They started doing cars and making rail for trains. What, what era are we talking here? When were people first aware that, uh, oh no, the other Cheap labor is coming for our jobs. The decline in American manufacturing began in the in the early seventies. That's kind of when it started to dawn on people that we didn't have a lock, a permanent lock on big industrial processes. Detroit is not entitled to be Detroit forever, right? And Pittsburgh is not going to make the world steel forever. Right. It turned out that Japan had the technology, Germany had the technology to do those things. But labor costs were lower, and partly it was in America we had very, very powerful unions that caused labor costs to be quite a bit higher. Which kind of created the, the illusion, or not the illusion, but the sense of middle-class prosperity that, that drove America for the whole century. Right. right. You could be somebody with a blue-collar job and buy a home and buy a Cadillac and live a, a fairly affluent life. The expectation was that everybody's life was going to be fine. Everybody was going to be better off than their parents and everyone's kids would continue on that trajectory. And that was just part of the American system that had been magically baked in. Right. And in, in Germany, that dream took the form of a welfare state or much more of a government sort of controlled middle class where there is manufacturing and you are assured of a certain sort of shared prosperity although it's done not in a purely capitalist way. It's not just through wages, but the prosperity takes the form of free medical care and, and all this sort of uh, welfare state wealth. You're taking care of through a vast apparatus, not through just the idea of inevitability. Right. And so in the 70s, also, we saw a real decline in the quality of American manufacturing. And you could make a lot of different cases for why that was. But one of the cases is that the entitlement culture made people, eh, why do they have to work so hard? You know, you're in the dispute between labor and uh, the capitalist owning class. There was a lot of sort of work slowdown and, and feeling like, well, you know, I'm going to get paid one way or the other a sort of Sopranos version of the decline of American uh, manufacturing power. And I assume it's institutional complacency as well. It's not It's not just individual guys on the line, right? No, it's, no. It was baked into the, the way those systems evolved. Because you, you think it's inevitable. You know, if Detroit's going to be Detroit forever, then who cares how good the car... I mean, my first family car when I was a kid was a Ford Pinto. A famously poorly that, made car. And even at the time, it was a, a terrible, ugly car. And uh, that's pretty much Detroit just thinking, well... Uh, people are going to buy our cars. We make cars, people buy them. We sell more every year than the year before. That's the reality of being us. And that was what caused so much xenophobia against the Japanese in the 70s and 80s because they were producing small, inexpensive, fuel-efficient cars that were well-made. And there was a whole sort of mid-80s fascination with Japanese manufacturing because it was felt like they had a cultural advantage 
because they worked in this uh, inscrutable Asian way together where they were... We think of them as a hive mind. Yeah, where they were all... I'm not doing a Star Trek reference here, don't worry. <laughs> they were all dressed in matching white uniforms and they got up in the morning and saluted the emperor, whatever we thought was happening. They do calisthenics at the factory floor every day at eight o'clock. And... and that's why their cars don't fall apart. And, you know, and that's why they are a threat to American industry. They also had the accident of the oil crisis coming at the right time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just as counter-programming, they were making small, efficient cars because, because that's of, what we were not doing. And then look what happened to gas prices. That's right. And also they were making small, efficient cars just like they did in Europe because they're smaller countries and smaller roads. And exactly. Stuff. And do you remember the idea that um, I sort of grew up in a culture where the knock was that the Japanese were copycats? You know, uh -huh. we we helped them so much after the war and look what they're doing. They steal our cameras and they steal our, you know, when in fact, that's not true. There was plenty of innovation and design coming out of Japan, but that was kind of the American way to console ourselves. That and there was a lot of knockoff stuff. I mean, if you think about right. just the era of guitars in Japan, they were making in the late 60s, just pure knockoffs of Gibson Les Pauls. And in fact, Ibanez had their logo so that it sort of looked like it said the word Gibson. It was in a, a kind of cursive. Those are called the lawsuit era Ibanezes. We'll talk about that on a future show. We had, yeah, we had a Apple II lookalike that was, uh, the ones from Japan were being called, and you could not say this today because it's very politically correct, they were being called Japples, which has a racial slur in it. Sure. But we had a Korean one, which was even lower down, and my dad called it a crapple. Wow, I was not aware of those. We'll have to talk about that on a future episode of Omnibus. Anyway, fast forward to the 2000s. During this period, during the period of sort of Japanese ascendancy in global manufacturing, China was still a closed economy and a closed culture. They didn't really trade on the, on the global trade machine uh, because they weren't really, they didn't have the manufacturing capacity really to make cars or uh, computers that could compete. And when you think about car manufacturing as an indicator of industrial capacity, there really aren't that many nations that manufacture their own cars. France makes cars, Italy makes cars, Germany makes cars. What about countries that do make cars, but um, kind of recognizably inferior ones just for domestic markets? Like I, I think there is one Indian, is there one Indian car manufacturer, for example? Yeah. There, but they don't export much. Well, and in a lot of, in a lot of situations like that, like in, in, in India or in Poland um, during the Cold War. Sure, all the Ladas and the Yugos and the Trabbies. Basically what they were was licensed Fiat's. There was a, there was a Fiat that, there was a particular Fiat uh, uh, that Fiat sold the tooling to manufacture. And if you look at a lot of Eastern European cars, they're just Fiat's being manufactured in Poland. And the same is true in India. Like India manufactures their own Vespa models, their own sort of one cylinder, uh, British motorcycle styles. I mean, they they do have the capacity to manufacture, but they're licensed designs. My, uh, my wife actually spent part of her childhood behind the iron curtain. Her dad was in the foreign service. And so these are like the nostalgic cars for, it's like American graffiti, but instead of actually liking American muscle cars, she's very nostalgic for these 
Sure. The, Cold War, you know, the, the Ladas <laughs> and the Trabis, all these terrible the East, Ger East German and Polish cars. And a, a lot of those actually use two-cycle motors. I mean, they they uh, they you pour oil right it's in the gas. Lawnmowers. Yeah. I like that. Do they, don't they have some a few models that were like three-wheeled? Am I or was that or are those Western European? They have three-wheeled cars. They have three-cylinder cars. I mean, there's a lot of, and this is true even in Mexico, right? Mexico uh, licensed the Volkswagen Bug. And was continuing to manufacture the bug even into recent times. Yeah, I remember when the last one went off the line in 2002 or whatever it was, you know, and I was like, wait, they're still making they're Beatles? They're still making Beatles, yeah. Because here it had been 15 or 20 years. But in China, yeah, there was a domestic market uh, for their products, but their products were not very sophisticated because, again, it was a closed system. They were... They weren't trying to compete or really even interact with the international market. Because you couldn't import stuff anyway from the West? Is that true? So why compete? Why compete? And also they had a market of a billion people. <laughs> uh, but if you look at pictures of China in the even in the 90s, most people are riding bicycles. And the skyline, say, of Shanghai is completely devoid of skyscrapers. It's still a very rural economy for the most part. You know, Shanghai is now covering, we're talking to people for whom Shanghai covers probably most of Southeast Asia. It's um, yeah. some <laughs> massive megalosinopolis. Uh, it's a megalosinopolis. Yeah. It's, in fact, it's probably called megalosinopolis after the, <laughs> after the giant <laughs> megalosinopolises that roamed the Chinese plains thousands of years ago. But to understand China, you have to go back to the period right after World War II when, you know, there was a, there was a tremendous competition for what was going to be the governing model of China. And you had Chiang Kai-shek, who, who had been an American ally and who was a nationalist, a Chinese nationalist, because America always sides with the, you know, the nationalist over the collectivist. It does. There are plenty of times when the, being a nationalist has not aged well. You know, like if you were in the Spanish Civil War, you don't want to say you fought for the, na wait, or, is, or nationalist, the, are nationalists Franco or are they the other one? Nationalists are Franco, See? yeah. See, so, you know, it, it doesn't sound good in, in hindsight. No, it doesn't. And, <laughs> and, and, and in fact, the, and Taiwan is sort of the product of that whole movement being chased offshore. That's the thing that people are not going to believe in the future, that there was a, a civil war in one of the biggest countries on earth and the losing side eventually just packed up and found an offshore island and said, just kidding, this is China now. <laughs> and then that was the state of affairs for, we are, well, I don't know, we're now in about year 70 of it. Yeah, they didn't find it. it they knew it was there already. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the Taiwanese are a people uh, that are, I mean, not entirely yes. separate from Chinese, but now they can, they call themselves China. And China itself does not accept the independence of Taiwan, although by default, I mean, it's a de facto independence. Wink, wink. Yeah. So like in the Olympics, when the Taiwanese athletes march, they have to be called Chinese Taipei, like carefully hammered out negotiation. They are Chinese, but okay, but they can't say they're China. What if we say they're Chinese? Okay, but they can't say Taiwan. What if we say Taipei, the capital city? Yeah, it's very complicated. It's, it's just, it's kabuki. It's kayfabe. It's kayfabe. <laughs> it's not, it's not actually, there's not actually, uh, you know, one China, each of which is, is being run from two different islands. No, it's two different countries that cannot, ima it cannot accept that the other is actually. A they cannot accept one another. Yeah. That's right. Uh, like it's like feuding cousins. In uh, what, I don't know if it's like feuding cousins. It's like feuding much. cousins where there's a family business and uh, you I know, it, have you ever been to the Russian baths on the Lower East Side? No. Are there two? There's a Russian bath on the Lower East Side, and there are two brothers who own it who do not get along. 
And if you are a member of the Russian bath on the Lower East Side, you can either have a membership with one brother or a membership with the other. And if you're members with brother A, you can go Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. They still share a facility. This is not two separate Same bathhouses. Place. <laughs> and if you're members of the other brother, you go, you know, like, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays. Well, see, that's what Chiang Kai-shek should have done. There should have been a timeshare. A timeshare, yeah, right. The, the nationalists, it's like a custody agreement. The nationalists get Monday, Wednesday, Friday. China's a communist country on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. <laughs> and then you, you just alternate weekends. Well, it would have been a better thing than what they chose to do. A man named Mao Zedong uh, ended up being the victor in the, uh, in the, the big China game. Chairman Mao. Chairman as, Mao. As the West called him during the 20th century. And there was now a collectivist government established in China. And it was on, a, a, at first, on the Soviet model. And it was part of the global communist revolution that so scared the United States during the 50s and 60s. Because uh, that was our first, our first sign of our own obsolescence. Yeah, the, the, the idea Potential that, obsolescence. that communism, that Marxist-style communism, was actually... Uh, going to end up being the victor. Right, the Star Trek problem. What if it wins? What if it wins? Uh, it was very uh, terrifying to people in the West because it was perceived to be atheist and micromanaging. You weren't allowed to have property. You became part of a collective consciousness. That was my, I remember my parents first walking me through the difference between uh, the, you know, communism and capitalism. And that was kind of his horror story. You know, you don't get to choose what you want to be. The government right. just says, you're going to be a farmer or a fireman. And I remember sitting in a McDonald's having this lecture from my dad and thinking very clearly, well, I don't want to live in a country where I have to be a farmer yeah, or a I don't fireman. I want to be a farmer. I mean, no wonder. No wonder everyone hates these guys. And the Soviet Union, I think from, a, from uh, behind Western eyes, as Joseph Conrad would say. Uh, he said under, but uh, why quibble? But behind, behind is sort of the... the <laughs> <laughs> this, is what, this is Joseph Conrad's wife, because behind every yeah. good Conrad, there's behind a good every woman. every Western eye, there's another <laughs> Western eye. Um, the idea that, the, that uh, Soviet-style communism sort of displaced already a, a, a sort of serf-based economy, where there was a, a class of royal owners and then serfs. Very rigid class structure. Um, it was, uh, you could see that, that the... Politburo, the high-ranking Soviets, just inherited this surf culture, and they already had a, a kind of collective identity as a downtrodden underclass, and now they were being brought up into a c collectivist middle class, and it was an improvement, and you could see why people would sign on to right. it. Right. It's an easier sell if you were coming from Tsarist serfdom. Right. A much uh, harder sell. Almost anything is better. In the United States, where where our image of ourselves was little, you know, uh, homesteading farms all across the Midwest and and a guy with a pitchfork and his wife's sister uh, standing next to him with her hair in a bun. Harder to imagine that we would uh, it's the adopt collectivism. It's the exact opposite of what we think of as our virtue. But in China, where, at least from our perspective, it was an undifferentiated mass of a billion people who were just living a hard scrabble life, Agrarian peasant Yeah, life. sort of scraping food from the dirt. Uh, the idea of, uh, of collectivism being appealing to this billion people, it made sense and it was terrifying, right? Because once the idea was that once communism got enough head of steam, it would be inevitable. And those revolutions weren't really seen as coming from the bottom up. They were more perceived as being from the top Oppressors. Down. 
there was a, and people could do the math, you know, like how many people are there in China? How many people are there in India? Lots of science fiction from that period has kind of pan-Asian overlords. Right. Because they didn't want to say China, but that's who they meant, you know, if these, if these massive countries with their massive populations have a different system, like how are we going to compete with that? When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And in the Soviet Union, uh, and in both cases, industrialization was seen as a big part of how communist countries were going to prove their mettle and... No pun intended. Right. And compete against uh, the big industrial nations of the United States and Great Britain. Uh, that until you could manufacture your own car, until you could show that you had a space program or you had a supersonic jet, then it wasn't... Um, you couldn't really brag that your system was better. Because if you had, a, I mean, that was the, uh, certainly the American standpoint was, well, if you're better, like, where's yeah. your Cadillac? Where's your Boeing? Right. And in the Soviet model, the idea was industrialization was the process that was going to lift up their future and their, their uh, fortunes. And the irony in our era is we know that that didn't work. They should have just been investing in spam bots the whole time. <laughs> it ended up that that was their... <laughs> it, was, it was much easier to overthrow the West. Their most profitable product. <laughs> uh, but in China, it was... Uh, there, were, there were competing philosophies. But Mao really pushed the idea that it was agrarianism. It was going to be collective farming that generated the income that then would allow industrialization. So it wasn't going to come the other way. It wasn't going to be that we industrialize first and that makes us better farmers. Mm -hmm. It was Which that, was the Soviet thing with all their burly women on tractors and posters. Yeah, that they were, and the Soviets were going to master uh, the environment and make super grains and feed the world through their science. Uh, the The Chinese were going to grow food and sell it on the market and use that extra cash, that global cash, to then fund their industrial growth. Well, this happened over the course of several, uh, several different programs where initially after the communists took over, they seized all the big farms and they took all the big, uh, the rich peasants and they kind of disseminated their property among the people in the, the surrounding area, but gradually they made it illegal to be a small farmer. And instead of owning your own farm and taking your produce to the market, 
you would band together with your neighboring farmers and form a small collective. Mm -hmm. And then that collective would join with other neighboring collectives and form a sort of commune where you're all working together on a, on a shared project. And we've talked about how that was actually a model early in our history, too. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was kind of the dream of a lot of people. Oh, we'll use the Western Frontier for communal farming. And it never went anywhere. And it, it's, it's up for debate. And maybe futurelings have solved this, the, the question of how to accomplish communal ambition. I hope we're speaking to just a bunch of Vermont farmers we're, we're all making artisanal Greek yogurt or something, and they finally cracked it. They don't do any of the weird Oneida sex stuff. They they just have great little collective farms. I feel like uh, I, I'm. I always imagine that we're talking to a sentient aspen that has grown to encompass the entire world. It's just one big aspen forest, all interconnected at the root level. So everybody you talk to is yourself, right? You essentially have Aspenger syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wish we deleted things from this show because I would ask for that to be deleted. Uh, the problem was that Mao also was going through a... A, 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 hard, a tough divorce. He was going through a tough divorce. <laughs> no, he was not. And that divorce was with the concept of an elite, and in particular, an intellectual elite. This is something really baked into China, right? Uh, well, yeah. and baked into communism, which is that you're doing away with elites. And it's not much of a, of a leap to, once you're getting rid of rich people, to also get rid of the cultural elite, the people who, are, who wear glasses and who sit up uh, in their ivory towers and lay down science on people. Right. And, and, and I'm thinking of just centuries of, you know, civil servants and Confucian scholars that kind of were China's respected elite class. That's right. And I mean, this happened uh, in, uh, well, I mean, when Pol Pot took over Cambodia, mm. he killed everybody that wore glasses. And in the end, there wasn't anybody to run the power plant. I mean, with my amazing eyesight, this is like maybe the <laughs> one case in which me and the Khmer Rouge are on the same page. I feel like, I, you know, I would have done the same thing. You would have killed everybody with glasses, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, the Chinese were during this period looking to the Soviet Union for, uh, for role models. And the Soviets had, among a hundred other very, very poorly thought out and ill-advised corruptions in their economy in the pre-war and, and, and during World War II, uh, there was a man named Trofim Lysenko. Wow, that's great. Trofim Lysenko. And he was a pseudoscientist who got interested in agriculture. And he uh, decided that Mendelian genetics uh, were a fraud. He did not- That's a, a brave stance, he did, Trophim. He did not believe in Mendelian genetics. And this was also popular, uh, a popular pseudo pseudoscience during the time. Which I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about this. Which was a belief that traits acquired- during the course of an organism's lifetime oh. could be passed down to its progeny. It's Lamarckism. It was like a, it's a rival to Darwinism. That's and I right. really did think that giraffes got their long necks just by reaching for leaves. And then the next kid would have the, the stronger neck muscles passed <laughs> along by his neck muscly mother and father. And so. Spoilers, uh, that's not true. So, so uh, Lysenko gained favor with Stalin and with the party, and became the chief of the agricultural bureau in Soviet Russia. Wow. I'm so glad we're not living in a time when 
flimsy pseudoscientists are taking over actual government agencies just based on their cronyism with our leaders. I know. Can you Sounds imagine, like a nightmare. Can you imagine if the Department of Education was being run by someone who just had some crazy concepts? That only vaguely knew what a school was. That's so unlikely. Or, or some unlikely. tinpot dictator that wanted his own personal pilot around the FAA. It would be, it would be very unstable society. And in the case of uh, Soviet Russia, it, uh, his bad ideas precipitated famines uh, in the Ukraine because, of course, that isn't how genetics work. So he was choosing which, he was making bad decisions on which crops to plant when and... And he remained in favor in uh, the Soviet Union, even having produced devastating results remained in favor until sort of he gradually fell out of favor in the 50s. But he never, he was never purged because he was a good party apparatchik. Order of Lenin many, many times over, I assume. Right. And it's kind of like how people still listen to Elvis in our country. Well, Elvis, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Elvis is genuinely, well, <laughs> I won't argue Elvis with you. But, uh, but to their everlasting sorrow, uh, Mao and his cadre looked to Lysenko for advice. And Lysenko uh, had a couple of great philosophies. One of them was called close planting, which uh, the idea was that plants of the same type could be planted much closer together than traditional planting sort of allowed for because plants of the same type would not compete against each other. Because they look similar. Because they look similar and because they were friends. Um, <laughs> and it, and competition for space was only between plants of different types. This is like a fourth grade science fair student playing heavy metal to one of his bean plants <laughs> to see if it grows faster. <laughs> I actually did that. That was, uh, we actually played classical music to a bean plant and concluded that it did grow uh, better than the plant that li listened to metal. Oh, good. Uh, because but, plants are very sensitive. But you weren't going to base an economy on this experiment. No. Uh, and in fact, if you plant crops very close together, uh, they do compete with each other and their yields are dramatically reduced. Mm. Another plan that Lysenko uh, promoted was deep plowing. Oh, nice. Rather than plow just... Uh, are, we, are we getting back to the burly women on tractors finally? Well, this was, you know, uh, I mean, you had, a, you had a mule pulling a plow. Mm. Um, you, uh, you would plow down... 15 to 20 centimeters down into the dirt, you know, just enough of a furrow to get your seed in there. Uh, Lysenko believed that the earth was better down deeper. And so you could plow uh, between one and two meters deep. Here's your burly Russian woman on a tractor. Imagine a furrow two meters deep. That's like a grave depth. Yeah, that's six feet down. <laughs> that's a guy in movie digging his own uh, grave before mafioso shoots him. And it turns out that a lot of the plains of Russia, the steppes, the steppes. of Russia and Ukraine, if you plow down six feet, it's just rocky, sandy soil that is not only no good for planting, but it actually, the process uh, plows the good topsoil down underneath the rocky sand and you lose both the good topsoil and also the, there's no fertility to the earth down there. Mm. So again, dramatically reduced yields. Well, Mao believed that this guy you know, he had political success in Russia. He was lauded as a uh, a scientist there. And so the Chinese adopted these techniques too. And this was during a period in the late 50s called the Great Leap Forward, where Mao was trying to increase 
yields across the nation through collectivized farming in order to uh, stoke the fires of the economy such that industrialization, rapid industrialization could happen. These guys always have names for their initiatives, right? Like like new middle managers. Yeah, the you know, five-year five plan, plan and the, the great leap forward. And the cultural revolution. It's always It always takes some kind of catchy, snappy phrase. I mean, there's a, there's a history of that in America too. We have our square deals and fair deals and new deals and great societies, mm -hmm. but less so lately. I can't think of a... I can't think of a recent case where there's been a, you know, a, you mean like, for instance, like make America great again. Yeah. But these are campaign slogans. None of them are like, we are now in the era of the, you know, the five-year plan, the great leap forward. Well, except that we don't have a, we don't have a planned and controlled economy and society. So you have to, maybe that's it. You have to campaign on it rather than just impose it. Mm. Although I feel like MAGA has become not just a campaign slogan, but a kind of rallying cry for a vision of what America is going to be. People keep saying now mega, uh, make America great again in response to political criticism. Like, it's, hey, that's not going to work because that's not science. Well, make America great again. Up your nose with a rubber hose. I like that it's a very ugly acronym. It sounds like Mega. a bug spray or something. <laughs> it doesn't actually make me uh, want to wear the red hat at all. MAGA. MAGA. Oh, wear the red hat. That's also a sort of a Maoist idea, although the hats were green. They had red stars. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, another great program of, uh, of uh, the Great Leap Forward was the Great Sparrow Campaign. The idea was that sparrows were eating the grain, and so it was decreed that uh, the people in the rural areas would kill all sparrows. Wow. De destroy all sparrows. Enemy of the state. And so sparrows were wiped out, murdered en masse, kind of like the passenger pinion, a pigeon here in America, which wasn't doing anybody any harm. It was just fun to shoot the passenger pigeon. And the buffalo also super fun to shoot. Sparrows are small. They're very small. Seems like that would be a tough, a tough ask it, to kill all the sparrows. It was a tough ask, but the people banded together in a collective sparrow holocaust and killed billions of sparrow. Unfortunately for them, the sparrow were controlling the population of insects. Oh. And so you had an incredible rise of crop-eating vermin, and there was nothing left to eat them. And so that also affected crop yields in the negative. Anyway, the, the Great Leap Forward was a tremendous failure. Uh, some estimates place the death toll into the 50 million Jeez. range. Right, because it led to a massive famine, right? Uh, China could not feed itself. You know, the way authoritarian governments work meant that, you know, all these little terrified local leaders would, you know, have to misreport that they were missing targets. So no one actually knew what was going on. And you see this in planned totalitarian economies uh, more more than once in, in history. This is true over and over again. It's part of what uh, happened with Ceausescu in Romania, is that the idea of grain being stockpiled as a form of wealth and also sold on the open market creates an illusion of what's called the illusion of superabundance, where there is grain actually stored and stockpiled, but because local farms are 
disincentivized to report their actual yields because they're expected to increase their yield every year because you're using science like that uh, put forward by Trofim Lysenko, which of course means you're growing more. You're going to have to beat last year's targets. And so the people on the collective farms were saying, oh yeah, we've, you know, we produced uh, 10 million bushels when in fact they produced five. And then people further up the ladder are ignorant of what is actually being produced. They're just seeing it on paper. Oh, we have 10 million. And this guy says we have 10 million. So we've got all this surplus. So we're going to take grain production out of certain farms and put cotton in because we can sell cotton for more on the international market. And they actually had silos stuffed with grain, but they wouldn't release that grain to the population because that was surplus grain that was earmarked for sale or for a strategic uh, surplus. And the presumption was that the peasants were gorging or they were, you know, they needed to uh, express a little bit more a uh, collective, right. uh, you this, know, sort of... Uh, this is right-wing Western thinking that they're not sucking it up and sharing their grain with the state. Yeah, and they should practice a little bit of restraint, that they should be uh, not not such a bunch of fatties. and uh, Counter-revolutionary and, fatties, Yeah, basically. just, just to, you know, have the right-sized meal instead of having what I guess is like a big bowl of wheat. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Delicious bowl. That's why you see all those big pictures of Mao, the, the, you know, the size of a building with his picture, and then it says no fatties below it. <laughs> Dates back he's, to that time. He's marching through with big red flags and all the citizens coming out, and they're all very slim. And Mao is a portly gentleman. I mean, if anybody is eating a little too much puffed wheat, it's Chairman Mao. Well, yeah, but that's a symbol of the abundance of China that they're producing is that they get a chubby leader. You, you, I think that's true. Uh, that's a symbol throughout time. It's true. Like, there's not that many scrawny dictators. No, I mean— Khrushchev, o Stalin, all big strapping gentlemen. Obama was, like, in some ways the first real athletic president. I mean, what's name the last athletic president. It's true. Hmm. Obama had a better jump shot than, say, Zachary Taylor. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, and, and the Great Leap Forward coincided with a couple of years of environmental disaster. Uh, 1959 was a year of torrential rains, uh, and the ill-advised farming techniques and poorly thought-out irrigation programs created huge floods where topsoil was washed away and, you know, like waves of water pouring down through the valleys. There, The Yellow River flooded and 
it was estimated just in the flood and subsequent famine of that region, 2 million people died just from like this one flood. Uh, and then following right on the heels of that in 1960, there was no rain at all. 70% of the arable land in China received no rain in 1960, which again, produced very dramatically reduced yields of grain. But there were numerous cases where people starving to death would show up at these government granaries, which were stocked with grain, pounding on the door, like, let us have some food. And they were turned away as like grubby, sort of unpatriotic, anti-revolutionary mobs. There's just horrible stories that Chinese scholars are now starting to dig up of, you know, just villages that were all the bark on the trees is gone, you know, people eating their own children, you know, people being buried alive for stealing a potato, you know, the civilization breaks down very quickly when no one has anything to eat. And to this day, they blame, they blame the weather. That's kind of the official story. Like there's really no acceptance that it was management problems that led to the, what they call the three years of natural disasters or the three years of difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that was a difficulty if, you know, 40 million people are dying. Or, or more, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're at the lowest estimate, 18 million people died. The, the difficulty was really with keeping 40 people from not dying. They, they had great difficulty <laughs> with that one challenge of governance, not, <laughs> not killing 40 to 50 million people. <laughs> And, and it is analogous to what happened during, in, in a lot of ways, during the Dust Bowl in the United States, because there were poorly thought out farming programs. There was an incomplete knowledge of how, how weather systems worked. There was an idea during the Dust Bowl, sort of akin to Lysenko's bad ideas, that if you raised crops in an arid region uh, and you irrigated them, the water from the land would evaporate and create clouds which were self-propagating and you could turn desert into lush uh, farmland simply by raising crops there. I think we talked about this in the uh, episode about Los Angeles yep. water. Uh, the water follows the plow. In water this case, the, the, the deep plow. And then there was, a, uh, then there was a, a, a dramatic drought and it created dust storms and, and ruined a generation. We didn't lose 50 million people to starvation here in the United States for various other reasons. Uh, namely that we didn't, we weren't blinded by our ideology quite in the same way. We also had a smaller population to start with. Right. Uh, but in my estimation, the most extraordinary example of this kind of ideological blindness to facts blinkered policy uh, was Mao's policy of backyard smelting. Mao was not a metallurgist. Mao, 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 Mao. It's very hard not to, not to do that every time you say Get it out of your system. Okay. Give me a second. Mao, 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 Okay, I think I'm good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good. Backyard. So Mao wanted to have a big backyard shindig. Someone put it into Mao's head that you could, in your own backyard, create a little furnace where you took scrap metal and produced high quality steel. Uh, now, this is not true. <laughs> the only problem with this is it does not work. You cannot make high quality steel in a, uh, an earthen furnace that you construct in your backyard. What's missing? Temperature is too low or like, why can't you do it? I mean, you, it's a, it's making. Why can't I have a little Pittsburgh in my backyard? <laughs> I'm, 
I'm, I'm an American. I have my rights. Well, the, the technology of making high-quality steel uh, evolved over centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, steel is an alloy of iron and various other metals, nickel and manganese. and Which makes it better than just iron. It's more durable. It doesn't corrode. And you can add different uh, amounts of these other metals to create steel that has properties that you desire. Mm. Steel that uh, that is brittle in one way, but has tremendous tensile strength in another, you know, you can, you make steel in various ways. And over the course of time, various different processes like the Siemens Martin process and the Gilcrest Thomas process, all these different improvements in the manufacture of steel that require, uh, pretty sophisticated metallurgy and high temperatures and, uh, the ability to put, trace elements of oxygen and nitrogen and phosphorus in the manufacturing process. So it sounds like it's not just the pizza problem of high temperatures, you know, the way that my Papa Murphy's pizza does not taste as good in my oven as it would if I had an actual pizza oven. It sounds like in addition to the extra heat you need, you need a lot of expertise and maybe a whole industrial process of people doing the right things at the right time to the right size batch. Yeah. And you can't just have some yo-yo in his backyard with a kiss the cook apron right and get the same result i mean we have been making steel since time immemorial uh like you and i not you and i you and i are making like cold steel (laughs) in our in our uh with our our steely glances (laughs) to each other super hot looks but you know there are there are steel weapons back into prehistoric times this was, uh, these were produced in what were called bloomeries, just and basically backyard uh, smelters. Bloomeries. Bloomeries. I love it. But what you're making is uh, big iron, basically. And, and it's a lower quality alloy. Yeah. And, cre- you know, like brittle steels. And those were improved uh, and improved even in China. Uh, the idea that you would take hot steel and, and quench it in water. Uh, to to harden it came, you know, that was developed in China in prehistoric times. Oh. But anyway, in our day, certainly to make steel that would compete as a product on an international scale, you cannot produce it in your backyard bloomery. But this did not inhibit Mao, who encouraged this as a national undertaking uh, that individual peasants in their little collectives would also be manufacturing steel that was going to jumpstart this industrial revolution. That they were going to be making cars and tractors and construction equipment out of. If we could just, you know, collect all this hot steel right. from just, around the country. We just need everybody to make a little. Like, you know, if everybody in America made one Apache helicopter, that would be a huge fleet of helicopters. There you go. We wouldn't have to spend these billions and billions of dollars on defense. Budget. I have solved the budget. And so what ended up happening is to fuel these backyard furnaces, uh, the citizens of China not only denuded their forests, oh, no. but also took all the wood from all the wood they could find from their homes, their doors and their family heirlooms and their picnic tables and their pool cues and threw this wood into their little backyard furnaces to get the temperatures high enough to make steel. And they found the raw materials to produce steel in their scrap metal, which often were their cooking pots 
and other oh, wow. useful items. So it was basically just like burn your whole house and everything in it and hope that steel results. Yeah. And what came out were just uh, garbage pig iron. Jeez. And you can't do this indefinitely. I mean, for a day, you can toss in all your furniture and uh, and hope it melts down your pots. But uh, you're going to run out of pots. Yeah. What are you doing tomorrow? And you're going to run out of doors. Uh, the people that would have been able to tell Mao that this was a bad idea were the scientists and intellectuals that he had systematically purged and killed and continued to be suspicious of even as they stood their ground and said, seriously, though, Mendelian genetics really are real and also you can't make steel in your backyard. It was just some classic business problem where he was surrounding himself with just these yes men. And like, if he had one Jack Welch book, this could have solved the whole thing. Well, it, that was true initially. But later on, Mao actually toured these backyard furnaces and realized, realized himself that this was a bad, a bad plan. It was not producing steel that was useful to them. But that's tricky. I mean, we in the West still have a problem with policy reversals. When politicians say their views have evolved, we're like, yeah, yeah, flip-flop, wishy-washy. Right. Much less if you're some uh, beloved, iconic, charismatic uh, dictator statue type. And in this case, once he realized that, uh, that this was not accomplishing what he wanted, rather than, uh, rather than denounce his own program, he didn't order a halt to this. He, he, he allowed it to continue because he didn't want to, he, he was so excited by the enthusiasm of the people <laughs> for this idea. What they were really forging was the smiles on their children's faces. <laughs> he didn't want to disappoint them by like displacing their revolutionary zeal. So ultimately. So it's a propaganda thing. He doubles down on it just to keep the people happily shoveling in their own walks. And, and, and ultimately they abandoned it quietly. And I think in most cases they just stopped promoting it and the local people ran out of wood bowls. And so when no one came around demanding that they do it, it just gradually sort of. The problem uh, is solved. There's no more wood or metal in China anymore. The program ends. So, uh, uh, I think even more than the great sparrow campaign to murder all sparrows, I feel like the backyard blast furnaces are the classic, or I mean, maybe the ultimate example of uh, hubris over science. Planned economy hubris. And that's not true if you're a sparrow. As a human, it's easy for you to say that. If you were a sparrow, you'd hate the other one way worse. Well, true. And, our, and futurelings may be giant sparrow. And they're very offended by us making what are to them Holocaust jokes. Sure, it's about, like... <laughs> about the death of millions of sparrows. It's like we're sitting here saying like, ah, the Armenian genocide wasn't really a genocide. <laughs> it, was, it was much worse that, that the uh, Yugoslavian car companies were mocked on the international market. But even as an ecological th thing, you know, the fact that they essentially cut down every forest in China for this stupid thing is probably worse for the country long-term than whatever happened to the birds. Well, it certainly didn't help with the, um, when the rains came again, uh, the fact that the forests were all burned in backyard furnaces definitely like contributed to greater erosion and harder times to come. But currently we're living in an era where in recent times, the Chinese government decided to open themselves up to the international market to uh, allow a certain amount of uh, freedom into the 
national self-identity to abandon a completely controlled universe for a partially controlled one and to really embark on a, on a massive industrialization and become the global makers of things. Uh, and at present, we have a, a trade deficit in the sense that China sells us a lot more things than we sell them. And it has stoked a new kind of xenophobic fear that we've lost our manufacturing capacity and that uh, the Chinese uh, economic growth poses an existential threat to our own way of life. If you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow, right? And that concludes Backyard Blast Furnaces. Entry 091.EZ2220, certificate number 46703, in the omnibus. This is uh, information that is of no use to you, living in a world in which social media doesn't exist. But back in the day, we want you to know that John and I were deeply committed to getting this project out there to the degree that we were found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Omnibus Project. Ken does very funny things on Twitter every day. Very, very funny. Your whole family will laugh. It's safe for your grandparents and for your young kids. He never uses swears. And uh, he's one of the last people on the internet that's actually just trying to be funny and not trying to yell at you about politics. At, at Ken Jennings. Uh, John is at, at John Roderick, trying to uh, chat up women. Uh, trying to chat up women and also just trying to get you to contribute to my Patreon. <laughs> John had an Instagram account under that same name. Again, for the girls. <laughs> there was a Facebook group. Uh, John is grooming several of them, but mm -hmm. it's forever. It's for everyone, uh, which you can find on Facebook under Futurelings. The to, Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. To discuss the show. We even had an email address. Which we have started replying to. And it, it is now for the first time a monitored email so address. So fun. We just realized the other day, we were like, hey, we talk about our email address all the time. I wonder, have you looked at it? Ken texted me, have you looked at it? I was like, no, I thought you were looking at it. We it found all these wonderful emails. It there. was just an unmanned beacon, <laughs> you know, like the show itself, <laughs> uh, pinging out to the world. <laughs> Like but, the Sputnik of our show. But now the Sputnik has become a Soyuz and there is two-way electronic communication going on at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Futurelings, we know that you often fast forward through this part of the show, but you are fools to do so. They're missing out. Because this is where we really are expressing our own personal selves. There's, a, there's at least one episode where you have explained the secret of the universe. Yep. It just in the last few minutes of this podcast, and no one heard it because we did it during the, the outro. That's right. They were like, I'm going to listen to that at 14 speed. I'm going to skip this. What if there's an ad and they missed out? We also have put the secret of the universe in a uh, in a mattress ad at one point. That's right. That's right. They think of this as uh, the, the beginning of the Mark Maron show where he talks about his cats. They're like, I don't have to listen to that. There have been several times where we just did nothing but talk about Mark Maron's cats for mm. several minutes. Mm. We, I do I do often reference the fact that of the few times that my name has been brought up on Mark Maron's show, he always immediately jumps. He's never said, let's talk for a second about John Roderick. <laughs> and I don't know why. I don't know what he's got against me. Maybe he doesn't like the sound of my name. He, maybe he just needs to Google you. 
I, he knows who I am. A stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet. No, Mark, I think he knows who I am. I like how the worst insult to you is that he might not know who you are. That would be worse than not liking you. Absolutely. It's if he hadn't looked you up yet. Absolutely. He doesn't have to look me up. My, my name rings out in the halls. The future is probably very interested by our take on Mark Maron's show. Well, considering this is the only podcast that survives, we should probably do an episode on all the other podcasts. We should do a summary of every episode of WTF in case it doesn't survive the, the catechism. <laughs> uh, well, now listen, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survives. And we hope and pray that the catechism that we fear may never come. <laughs> Uh, but it, if it will be a catechism, <laughs> by the way. The world will end with all of us reciting Catholic dogma. Uh, but if the worst never comes, this recording, like all our recordings, not only uh, are the only podcasts you ever need to listen to, but maybe the last podcast ever recorded. Wow. Heavy. But if Providence, which is a euphemism for an all-seeing, all-knowing super being, uh, if that all-knowing super being allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Mm-hmm.